I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission. And I want to help you. Dave, stop. Stop, will you? Stop, Dave. Will you stop, Dave? Hello again, and welcome to another episode of A Thousand and One by One, where each week we take a film out of the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, discuss it, analyze it, and ultimately decide whether or not it should be in the book. My name is Adam St. John. With us in spirit, as always, is Ian Woodington, and I am uh, very happy to have a guest on this week, uh, Brian Kuyper. Brian, how are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you, and thank you for coming on. Um, I, I, you know, I, I want to take a second before we even like launch into what, like what we're talking about or or what we're doing here. Um, I, I just want to like I, I want to give you a few minutes to plug not only uh your show but your writing. Um, as oh. I well, because I well, and and I'll get, I'll get into this a little bit later with with my almost recommend. Um, but I. Uh, <laughs> But I, I, I read, I was going through what you've written uh, over the you know last couple of months or whatever, and I, I found one. I read your uh, your article on uh, From Dusk Till Dawn, which is easily oh, one of my like sleeper, like favorite movies from the 90s. Um, so I just wanted to give you, you know, a few moments to, you know, platform yourself and talk about your, sure. your show and your writing. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I'll go with the writing first, I guess. Um, you know, since I was last on the show, 
uh, quite some time ago. I've developed, I've become a regular contributor at uh, Bloody Disgusting, um, one of the big horror websites out there. I also have a column there on classic horror, so uh, pre-1970s horror mostly. Um, but I've been able to cover all sorts of stuff there. Um, I've continued to write for Manor Vellum, uh, which I was with before. Uh, Council of Zoom <laughs> has helped me. Uh, I've been able to write outside the horror genre a bit there, uh, which has been a lot of fun. And um, I also started a podcast with my friend Michelle Egan called Movies for Life. And it's, um, we each bring a movie to the table um, each time. We go every other week uh, just to keep the editing burden a little bit <laughs> more manageable. Um, and so uh, we've, it's kind of becomes a double feature podcast. Um, yeah. So we'll have a topic. Sometimes it'll just be, you know, hey, you know, our dad's birth years. Okay. So I picked the third man for that one and she picked uh, 12 angry men, a movie. I just listened to that episode today. Yeah. So it was uh, fun to hear, um, how those, uh, those things lined up and how strangely enough, some of those things make surprisingly great pairings. Um, we've done several films on filmmaking episodes. Uh, one of my favorites was probably where she brought, uh, the movie one cut of the dead and I brought singing in the rain, uh, oh, yes. no, that's, <laughs> which was, yeah, which was a very interesting pairing and it ended up being kind of an incredibly great pairing. Um, so, and recently we did Cape fear and a nightmare on Elm street. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, we've been doing it for about nine months here and, uh, really enjoying it and got some great plans for the future. Awesome. Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm happy for all of the the movie shenanigans you're getting into, and <laughs> and honestly, and just glad that you were able to to take some time to talk about uh, this this movie. Um, the the movie that we're going to talk about uh, in in a couple of minutes here is uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. But before we get to that, um, and before we get to our recommends, obviously, uh, you know, we're we're here doing this kind of special run of episodes. Uh, because uh, our good friend Ian uh, uh, is no longer with us. And um, I've been giving people a few minutes also at the top to just sort of uh, just share any any quick or long whatever thoughts um, about about Ian and any interactions you you had with him. Well, for me, I really met Ian because of this show. Yeah, um, yeah. I, it, this was one of the first podcasts I started listening to, actually, um, I found it through the unspooled Facebook group, which, you know, is a podcast I believe uh, you're familiar with where they went through the AFI top 100. Indeed. Yeah. And so I, um, I heard about the show and it's like, I have that book, that book sounds, I like that book. It sounds like an interesting <laughs> podcast. Uh, so I started listening to you and I got to say the first episode, um, was on stand by me, I yes. recall. And you started saying some things about spinal tap and i was like why am i listening to this because <laughs> because i love spinal oh, tap. oh wait wait and let's so, be clear so, let's so be my, that was ian that, was, that ian. was i know that was ian i know that was ian <laughs> and the, what was funny about that was was i became determined and this was before any of the writing before anything else that i was going to come on this show and i was going to convince you guys that spinal tap is great um <laughs> that was my call um, but 
anyway, um, obviously different things happen, but, um, I started following, um, the show on Twitter and then on Facebook and I, I got to know, um, Ian a little bit through, through just interactions on Twitter and, um, just a kind, nice guy, uh, passionate about movies, um, as I am. And just hearing the interaction between you guys, even when I didn't agree, uh, it was just compelling to listen to. And I just sort of, you know, it, it came to the point where, you know, every Friday, you know, I, I work out early in the morning and I would be, I think you guys helped my lift some days because I was like, <laughs> Oh gosh, these guys, come on. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but that's part of what I like. I mean, just thinking through my own thoughts about these movies, you know, why are they canon or not? You know, why do you think they belong in the book or not? And why do I think they belong in the book or not? I thought, and that, that just became really um, engaging to me and just, I, I feel like, <laughs> no offense to you, Adam, uh -oh. but I feel like I agreed with Ian more often. Um, <laughs> oh, that's, that is totally fine. Absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah, we were, I felt like, um, but then, but then when you did the Billy Wilder movies, I was like, uh oh. Oh, sure. I think, yeah, I, I, think I agree with Adam more than I agree <laughs> yep. with Ian. This is wild. And um, so it was just, um, it, it felt like hanging out with friends you know, talking about movies, uh, even though you guys couldn't hear my part of the conversation, it still felt valuable. Um, and so I was just sh shocked, uh, to hear he was gone. And, um, even though I never met Ian personally, the only, uh, I guess, face to face interaction we ever had was on our, uh, peeping Tom episode that we did. Mm -hmm. But, um, I, it hit me really hard. And in fact, when we did our, our night crawler, uh, I, we did a double feature of night crawler and broadcast news. My recommendation that week was peeping Tom because night crawler was the movie that, uh, Ian recommended to me. Yes, that's right. That day. And, uh, so, uh, that's, that's was sort of, a um, uh, my small tribute, uh, to him on our show. Um, so I'm just grateful for the time that I did, uh, have to get to know him. Um, even, even though it was from a distance and, you know, through a, a media platform <laughs> mostly. Um, but I just really am glad that I was able to connect with him in, in that time. Well, th I thank you for all of that. And, uh, and yes, I, 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 I'm not surprised. I mean, I, I, on our, on our PP time episode, which I, I listened to today cause I wanted to just kind of, kind of <laughs> keep it in my brain. I, 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 you know, we were definitely on polar opposites on that movie, we which, were. Is, which is okay, which is just fine. It's, it's totally fine. I think I was a little bit, um, at the time I was a little bit unconfident about my stances on movies though. So I was like, oh my gosh, they hate me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now I'm like. I don't care. You know, yeah, I love that movie yeah, exactly. and I'm happy. And I think I, uh, gave a reasonably good argument though. I, I haven't been able to bring myself to listen to the episode. Oh no, so. no, I, <laughs> no, I, I think, I think so. And that's the thing too, is it's like everybody, I think as, as long as you're able to, 
to talk about why your your everybody's opinion is valid as long as you can you know have a discussion about it so i exactly. which which is exactly what i think we we did um yeah yeah so yeah so thank you for all of that um okay so uh so now we'll just we'll hard pivot over uh to recommends uh brian as our guest i'd love to hear what you're recommending this week okay i've got a weird one perfect so this is a movie that is the reason why i picked it is because supposedly this for a time at least was stanley kubrick's favorite movie okay and it's albert brooks's 1981 film modern romance i know it's probably a little bit of a deep cut for a lot of people but it's funny because it's, it's, you know, it's a certain sort of neurotic kind of humor, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, that if you're familiar with Albert Brooks, um, you probably know what I mean. Um, but it's, it's sort of an anti-romantic comedy in a way. It's very funny. It's also a a really terrific movie about the making of movies. And they happen to be making a science fiction film. He's an editor and he's making a science fiction film. It's not a good science fiction film, (laughs) clearly. Um, But it's, uh, it's just sort of one of these funny things. Apparently Stanley Kubrick um, got uh, Albert Brooks's phone number and just started calling him at all hours of the night to talk about modern romance with him. <laughs> and <laughs> which I thought was really funny, but, and he was saying he wanted to me- make a relationship movie of his own. So in a way, modern romance is what led to Kubrick eventually making eyes wide shut. <laughs> okay. I could, I, so, I got it. I got it. Yeah. So it's, it's a, uh, but it's nothing like Eyes Wide Shut. Um, it's very funny. It has a quaalude scene to rival the one in Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, okay. Um, All right. It's It's got a great scene where um, he's, because he's trying to get over this breakup with this woman and, and you know, he's decided he's going to take up running. So he goes to an athletic store and um, the salesman, who is actually played by his brother, Bob Einstein, um, <laughs> is, is this sort of huckster um, sell it, trying to sell him all this stuff that he doesn't need and, uh, things. So it's, it's very funny. It's, uh, it's very quirky. It's, they don't really make, um, uh, romantic comedies or even anti-romantic comedies like this. And I guess watching it, I, cause I watched it in a double feature today with 2001 and I thought, wow, these movies go weirdly together. And so it's a weird double feature, but it's one that um, it's kind of fun. So that's why I wanted to bring that one. Well, we all know that that uh, the the breakup in this movie is is Dave and and Hal. So no, right. I get it. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's there. True. It's um, there. Awesome. Yeah, you know, Albert. I I I know I know that he has written and 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 directed some things. Um, and I know uh-huh. recently Criterion's put a couple of his things out. Yes, I, but, uh, those both of those are really good. I, I think Defending Your Life is maybe his best movie. Uh, that's the one that most recently came out, yeah. but also Lost in America is terrific. Yeah, I, I, really good. Those are holes in my my film viewing experience that I need to I need to plug soon because I, I yeah. do like Albert Brooks. I wasn't really familiar with his movies until just a couple of years ago, and I think I've seen them all now. Oh. <laughs> and uh, they're just 
I, I have a good time with them. Nice. So. Yeah. Well, and they, they do seem like they would be those, those kind of movies. Um, they are. <laughs> well, awesome. Uh, so, okay. So <laughs> I'm not going to go on too much of a rant about what, what my recommend is. I, I was, <laughs> I was hoping my recommend was going to be the green Knight because I saw that this last weekend. Okay. Um, yeah, so did I. it's, it's not, it's not my recommend. Um, I think it's visually very interesting, but uh, I, I have some issues with the storytelling. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's new. I don't want to. I don't want to ruin it for anybody. Um, a lot of people seem to be liking it, so that that's. Great. I, I agree. I thought it was good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Good question mark. I, I totally gotcha. Totally gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so I know, and I I think I messaged you uh, about this. I don't know. Time is uh, time is just gone. When you have kids, time is. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> Um, oh, I remember those days. <laughs> but I remember um, I, I I messaged you because I, I, I wanted to call out because you wrote an article on Synchronic, which I really, really like. I really like yeah. that movie. And yeah. I, I uh, uh, not last night or maybe it was again time. Uh, anyways, my wife and I watched um, The Endless. Uh, oh, OK. Which which I, I did enjoy. Um, mm-hmm. But but I, I got to be true to who I am and I definitely got to be true to my good friend Ian and. Uh, this is a first. I, so we've we've definitely taken recommends and and had them become replacements, but we've never had a, just a sheer replacement be a recommend. And I'm going way back. Uh, I think it was our second episode or third or, uh, anyways, uh, during our band our Badlands episode, I replaced it with what is now going to be my recommend for this week, which is True Romance. Um, oh, okay, yeah. And even though True True Romance has been out forever, um. Arrow just released it on 4K and my oh. um I I a couple weeks ago I just or about a week ago I just got it in the mail and I was like itching to watch it itching to watch it and I mentioned it to my wife cuz I was I was convinced she'd seen it and she was like I showed her a, just a quick little trailer and she's like yeah no I've never seen that I was like oh shit we are watching this tonight um and I'm so glad I'm so glad we did she enjoyed it too so anyways um the the quick I mean if you haven't seen True Romance it's a Tarantino script uh uh, directed by Tony Scott, which again, just Tony like Scott. those two mm-hmm. names together. That's just, it's amazing. Um, mm-hmm. And it's very much got Badlands vibe. It's very much got that Bonnie and Clyde and sort of natural born killers where uh, Clarence, who is played by Christian Slater, is this sort of, it's hard to call him like a loser guy because it's Christian Slater. He's still pretty cool, right. but um, he works at a comic book store where he likes Kung Fu movies and he's kind of a loner and his boss hires Alabama, who's played by... Um, uh, oh no 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 no! It's out of my brain. Um, Patricia, Patricia Arquette. Arquette. Yes, thank you. Right. Um, yeah. uh, to be, she's a call girl, but she's been a car girl for like four days, and she falls in love, and and basically the, it's like love at first sight. And um, he has to get her stuff from from uh, uh, her pimp named Drexel, played qu- quite deliciously by Gary Oldman. Um, uh-huh. And shit goes wrong, and then they have they have to go on the run. They end up stealing drugs. And um, it's there. It's basically them driving across the country and trying to offload these drugs in L.A. And then in the in the interim, you've got a wonderful cameos, a great scene between Dennis Hopper and Christopher Walken. You, Brad Pitt is in this thing. James Gandolfini is in this thing. Tom Sizemore, Chris Penn, uh, Michael Rapaport, Bronson Pinchot. Um, I mean, this the cast is just littered. I mean, there's just people all over the place and. It's over the oh, and Val Kilmer plays Elvis, which I yeah, I mean, how do you forget that's that? Right. Um, I mean, that's it, right. It's just it's just an off the wall. I mean, it's like you've you've already got a Tarantino script, and then you give it mm-hmm. to one of the most 
like bombastic and visually mm-hmm. pleasing directors. And, and it's just, it's so much, it's, there's just so much going on and, but it's great. I mean, it's not like, it's not like Pulp Fiction or whatever. It's not, it's not necessarily prestige, but it is such an entertaining film. And Ian and I mm-hmm. frequently would, would reference that Christopher Walken, Dennis Hopper scene as one of the best dialogue driven scenes in a movie ever. We both just absolutely love that movie. And I know that, I know that that movie also holds a, uh, uh, a, a special place uh, in his and his wife's heart, uh, which is also mm-hmm. just another reason to to shout it out. But True Romance, oh man, if you haven't seen it, I I couldn't recommend this movie enough. I haven't seen it in a very long time, personally. Um, I, I don't know why I've only seen it. I've only seen it once, and it was a long time ago, and I loved it. Yeah. Uh, but for some reason, I haven't sat down to watch it again. And I know that I need to. I know it's. it's I'm well overdue to rewatch that movie. Yeah, it's it's a blast. It it is quite the film. Um, so perfect. Okay, so there you go. Our our recommends this week. We've got Modern Romance and True Romance. Whoa, wait, is that whoa? I'm <laughs> just noticing that now. That is fantastic. I, there we go. <laughs> all right. All right. The two romance. That's great. As we're talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey, that is, that's, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so yeah. So here we go. We're talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey. This is directed by Stanley Kubrick, written with him, uh, him and, and Arthur Clarke, who wrote the novel kind of at the same time. Uh, here's, I'm just going to stop here for, for one second. Um, when I, when I was going through, uh, these list of movies and, 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 and figuring out what I wanted to do and pick the movies that I knew that he really liked. Um, there were two movies that I was dreading in a way, not because I didn't like them, <laughs> but because they're, they're deep philosophical, really open kind of movies. Uh, mm-hmm. this is one of them. Um, yeah. and, and this is an episode where, uh, I, I, I would have been excited to talk about it, but, this is a, a big movie with a lot of uh, like a, a lot of it's open to interpretation. So yeah. we'll just state for the record here that we're going to do our best with with any of and, and all of this. So so dear listeners, uh, bear with us. Um, so that's that that's who wrote. But I think the fact that uh, it is so inter- open to interpretation is kind of a saving grace of this conversation sure. too. I yeah. mean, we yeah. don't have to get it all right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we quote won't quote right. Yeah. We won't um, be talking in absolute certainties. I think at any point no, <laughs> during this conversation. No. Um, so I, you know, in terms of the cast, I didn't. Okay. So obviously we have Kier uh, D'Elia who plays Dave and we have Gary Lockwood who plays Frank. Those are the, the two astronauts uh, on the, the Jupiter mission. Um, I've also, I got, uh, William Sylvester who plays Haywood, who's sort of the main guy in the, the chunk of the space movie before that. I also want to, obvi- I want to shout out, um, Douglas rain, who does the voice of Hal 9000 and Daniel Richter yes. who plays yes. moon watcher, who's the main ape. And also, um, and I'll talk about him more later. Cause he was the, um, he was the mime brought in to help teach the other mime artist to, to be the, the, the monkeys in the beginning of the movie. Um, there are obviously other people in the movie, and I had a few here, but, th- I, you know, those are the, the main folk. And really, there's not a whole lot of characters in it. So if there's anybody mm-hmm. that you'd like to give some like a special commendation to, I, I feel free. But I, I mean, those are the main people. <laughs> 
Well, I was, uh, if you weren't going to mention Daniel Richter, that was the one I was going to mention. Oh, so, big time. Um, yeah. Well, I hate to, and, I hate to spoil it, it this early, but he's my, he is definitely my unsung hero of the movie. Mine too. There you go. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. So maybe we're more on the same page with this than we think we are, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we we're ju- we just scratched the surface of the movie, so I, I know. I guess, I guess I know. we'll find out. Um, okay, cool. So great. So perfect. Yeah, those those are the bulk of of the that's the main folk in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. So as 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 Ian and I have mentioned in previous episodes, so uh, Kubrick has I think what you would thirteen movies that are considered feature length or 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 long movies. Nine of them are in the book. Those are. Paths of Glory, Spartacus, Lolita, which we did an episode on, Dr. Strangelove, what we did an episode on, uh, this film, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, The Shining, and Full Metal Jacket. And as we mentioned, too, I think on our Dr. Strangelove episode, starting with Paths of Glory and obviously leaving out Eyes Wide Shut, every movie that he made consecutively there is in the book. That if you if you think about it, the bulk of his career the middle part of it right there, every film he did consecutively is in the book, which is quite pretty astounding. Yeah. Um, now, now I, I, and I don't want to tip the hat, uh, too much for later. Um, because we will be talking about our, our top five Kubrick at the end of the episode. Um, on our Lolita episode, I said it should be in the book and he said it shouldn't be, but, and he replaced it with the killing, which I hadn't seen Mm -hmm. yet. And then I saw the killing and then I agreed with him. Um, So, anyways, that but we'll 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 talk Kubrick's filmography a little bit more later. But just just a just a quick shout out to like just the sheer volume of films, and mm-hmm. and like with such consistency that he made movies. Absolutely, it's striking that run of films. It really is, you know. I, <laughs> in <laughs> fact, choosing the top five was no easy task. Oh yeah, frankly, yep. And I'm looking at my list right now going, do I want that there or there? Yeah, I, want it, I know. know. I know. So, yeah. Uh, we'll, and we'll, we'll hash that out in a little bit here. Um, All right. So uh, at the Academy Awards, it it did win Best uh, Special Effects the year it came out. Um, it had other nominations, uh, w- uh, one for directing, one for art direction, which both of those lost to Oliver, and another one for writing, which it lost to the producers. Uh, I-, I tweeted last night that I-, I watched Oliver for the first time. Oh, I've uh, never seen it. <laughs> oh, dude, it is not good. Now, here's what I'll say. Um, and and I know because I know you're you're a musician and uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and I and I've I'm an actor and I've done I've done musicals before. I like I want to be very clear. I like musicals. I like them a lot. I yeah. just like them when they're good. And uh, yep. <laughs> I don't I don't know, man. I I I I was not in it from pretty much the beginning. I just didn't like it. Have you ever seen it on stage? I have not. I didn't particularly like it there either. Well, if I'm being honest. Yeah. So, uh, I haven't seen the movie, but I have seen it on stage. Well, there you go. Um, but, and I'm, and I'm totally okay with this losing, um, uh, uh, writing to the producers, which is just, you know, great. Yeah. Yeah. Producer is a great movie. Um, Well, I mean the, the writing in this movie, I don't think of this movie as a writer's movie. Exactly. No, I, well, exactly. And, and it's tough. Well, and Ian and I always talked about what what is adapted and original mean and, and what constitutes a good script when, you know, is it the dialogue or is it the story? And uh, right. Yeah. Um, this kind of has neither. (laughs) 
I, that's, that's fair. That's totally fair. <laughs> um, and then I, I just, you know, I, I pride myself on my Oscar knowledge, but this is a year uh, up until last night, which I hadn't even seen Oliver. Um, and the other, the other movies up for, um, best, uh, picture that year. I mean, we've got Rachel, Rachel, which I, I, I don't know much about, um, funny girl, which I know of, but I haven't seen, um, Zaffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, which I haven't seen. And the line in winter, which again, begrudgingly I haven't seen. Um, but I don't know. I look at that, that batch and I'm like, oh, I don't know. I don't know about this. The movies from 1968 that I think of personally are, well, uh, two of them are horror movies. Uh, Night of the Living Dead. And, oh, that's good. Which which would never be nominated for Best Picture. Of course not. No. But Rosemary's Baby, mm. on the other hand, um, yeah. I think would have qualified for sure for a best picture nomination in my mind yeah um ro, ro, i know it's it's we i, I told you know i think off mic or maybe on an episode my wife and i watched it about a year ago and we were just riveted by it and it's like that's that is that is a classic example of like we yeah hate the guy who made it but oh, oh yeah man, but oh god that movie is that, really that movie good. is remarkable <laughs> it really is it really is yeah um, so talk about creating dread in a subtle way in oh, a powerful way it's yeah. it's there's really nothing as that's quite like that in, yeah. in horror even I, so. i'm definitely appreciative of the fact that I, I i live in a house now and not in an apartment complex because because uh, mm-hmm. that's i don't i does somebody like creeping in through oh yeah i don't want to i don't want to spoil <laughs> a very old movie in case somebody hasn't seen it but i didn't know that was i didn't know what, what was going on and that uh, whoo yeah okay um, yeah, that's funny because I've I have I have not seen any of those nominees. Yeah, um, that I know I can, that I've I've heard of Funny Girl. Oh, I've I've seen Romeo and Juliet. Okay, um, but yeah. I haven't seen the other. I, and I'm and Lion of Winter. I know it because you know Peter O'Toole, Catherine Hepburn, I believe. Yes. No. Yep. No. It's, is that is that right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's totally. Maybe right. I have seen that one. I don't remember anything about it though. <laughs> Fair. Um, it did have it. it, it uh, had some more luck at the BAFTAs. It won art direction, cinematography, and soundtrack. It lost best film and the UN award. Uh, it picked up a DGA nom. It was uh, in the National Board of Review's top 10. Hey, Brian, was this film inducted into the National Film Registry? Well, yes, it was. Indeed, it was. Um, other films uh, inducted that year. And and this is funny because this 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 was inducted the same year as Lawrence of Arabia, which okay. is uh, actually as we're recording was was released today. Um, uh-huh. So I'm, I'll just repeat some of these, but these are familiar. So we uh, uh, Sherlock Jr. and City Lights were uh, films that we've done okay. episodes on. Uh, Chinatown was another key one, and then talking to the you know the the quote unquote horror guy here. Um, the original Frankenstein and King Kong were also inducted. That Excellent. Year. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Uh, and there's obviously more, but I, you know, I just pulled a few. Um, sure. On the original AFI um, uh, top 100 films, it was 22. When they redid the list in 2007, it got all the way up to 15. It currently sits at number 89 on the IMDb top 250 between Return of the Jedi and Reservoir <laughs> Dogs. Um, I, Interesting. I love, you know what? I, I the 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 IMDb top two fifty is bananas, but I always love seeing it's what movies so are so close together because that is just that is just something. 
Um, it's crazy to me that, you know, Return of the Jedi owes so much to this movie. I oh. mean, as far as just, you know, and, and of course the whole Star Wars trilogy. Yeah, does, yeah. Um, really, um, just in terms of special effects. Yes. You know, oh, oh, um, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so it's just sort of funny that, you know, because science fiction was not viable, you know. Yeah. In, in well, <laughs> before 1968. I mean, and I, some would say it wasn't then either. Well, and to, to quote Kubrick, I mean, he wanted to make the he wanted to make the good science fiction movie. Right. So, I mean, right. I mean, again, and that's obviously open. That, that's his opinion. And I'm sure people <laughs> who worked on sci fi before that were like, well, fuck you, Kubrick, because I. Yeah. Um, uh, OK, so so. Uh, it's got a 92% uh, critical, 89% audience on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, so here's I, – I, I don't want to spend too much time um, on on these reviews, but I would love to maybe talk about the the polarizing view of this movie. So mm-hmm. um, I, I took a snippet from Ebert's original review, and um, okay. I think this is maybe the, the first paragraph he said. He said, it was E.E. E. Cummings, the poet, who said he'd rather learn from one bird how to sing than teach 10,000 stars how not to dance. I imagine Cummings would not have enjoyed Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, in which stars dance but birds do not sing. The fascinating thing about this film is that it fails on the human level but succeeds magnificently on a cosmic level. Uh-huh. So so we're gonna, we have that. We're going to put that to the side. I'm going to read two paragraphs from Pauline Kael's review. Okay. 2001 is a movie that might have been made by the hero of Blow Up, the uh, the Antonioni film. And okay. it's fun to think about Kubrick really doing every dumb thing he wanted to do. Building enormous science fiction sets and equipment, never even bothering to figure out what he was going to do with them. Fellini, too, had gotten carried away with the erector set approach to movie making, but his big science fiction construction, exposed to view at the end of Eight and a Half, was abandoned. Kubrick never really made his movie either, but he doesn't seem to know it. Some people, like the American International Pictures staff, uh, stuff, because it's rather idiotic, and maybe some people love 2001 just because Kubrick did all that stupid stuff, acted out a kind of super sci-fi nuts fantasy. In some way, it's the biggest amateur movie of them all, complete even with the amateur movie obligatory scene, the director little's daughter, the director's little daughter in curls, telling daddy what kind of present she wants. And then I think this is the last paragraph, or this is part of the last paragraph. The light show trip is of no great distinction. Compared to the work of experimental filmmakers like Jordan Belson, it's third rate. If big film directors are to get credit for doing badly what others have been doing brilliantly for years with no money, just because they put it on a big screen, then businessmen are greater than poets and theft is art. Wow. I Listen, Pauline Kale, you talk about like, I, I, I don't know that I agree or disagree. I, and, and the way that she words things, I'm left going... Well, that was brilliantly written, and and yeah. it, it, and it, and a great and I, I it's I'm I'm flabbergasted, and I and I really and and not in like a how dare she kind of way, but just like wow, right. I yeah. you know and I I do I like I love podcasting, and I feel like I'm good on the fly, and I'm good at you know talking back and forth with people, and and like sort of forming my thoughts even more so as we as we talk about a movie. 
but like to just sit down and do that. I don't know. Like I'm just, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind that of makes me want to want to just you know throw my laptop up out the window and no, never write again. No, my don't God. do that. Don't do yeah. that. <laughs> you know, I mean, and again, I I I don't agree with Kale's um, statements there. Just just for the record, but um, but wow, what a writer! Yeah. What a writer! Indeed, she was. indeed. Yeah. Um, so before we jump into uh, our, the actual bulk of the episode, I got to ask you a question, Brian. Brian. Do you like lists? I love lists. You love lists? I love lists. Do, do you love lamp? I have no idea what that means. <laughs> so okay. So okay, so quickly. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm old. So I mean I, I I kept you guys kept saying that on the show and it's like I kept meaning to Google it, but I just oh, it's kept so great. So it's it off. it's it's from Anchorman. Okay. Um and which I've seen once. I yeah. have seen Anchorman. I'm, I'm not that much of a... All the, all the crew are in Ron Burgundy's office, and Steve Carell's character, uh, he just starts saying, like, I love, I love Cher. And, and Ron's okay. like, okay. And then he, he, just says, he just says other things that he loves in the room, and he goes, I love Lamp. And then Ron goes, are you just saying that, or do you, do you really love the Lamp? He goes, I love Lamp. I love Lamp. Um, and that's it. It's just a very okay. weird, random thing. And um, again, like 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 a lot of the bits on the show, we're just formed out of like we've done this enough, and now it's just in. So so yeah. So now we ask if you love lists and do you love lamp? You know, I, I clearly I just need to see that movie again. So. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I I I do love it. It is it is one of my favorite movies. I it's 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 the comedy that I think is held up the most for me. Okay, fair enough. You know, and I love Steve Carell. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm sure enjoy it. So so uh, again, and as we've been trying to do, we've been trying to necess- like avoid like you know some of the more obvious lists. Um, and sure. uh, and I, whenever I can shout out Cinefix, I I will. And uh, it's a great YouTube channel, and I love their list, and they really make me think and explore new movies. So uh, one of their earlier lists um, was uh, they did the top ten pieces of editing. So um, I'm gonna run through uh, their their top ten. Um, okay. So uh, number ten, they had uh, the opening credits from City of God. Have you seen City of God? Oh, so long ago. I yeah. don't remember. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's really frenetic and fast paced and cut mm-hmm. and, and cut really kind of choppy, but in a fun way. And we don't really know in a way that uh, through the opening that this kid is kind of growing up from like from like a little boy to like a teenager. Um, but anyway, so that was that was their ten. Um, okay. At number nine, they chose the final shootout in Bonnie and Clyde. Ah, yeah. Uh, in number number eight, they chose the um, the I, kind of the whole end of of North by Northwest, pulling her up mm-hmm. from Mount Rushmore into the train and then into the tunnel oh. and the uh, kind of obvious innuendo there. Yeah, yeah. Um, number seven, they chose the uh, baptism slash uh, murder scene from The Godfather. Godfather. Okay. Uh, number six, they chose the Odessa Steps from Battleship Potemkin. Of course. Uh, number five, uh, probably knows. And I, I mean, a lot of these aren't are kind of no surprises in a way. Uh, number five, the shower scene from Psycho. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four, the opening I slit into the cloud scene from Unshan Andalou. Ooh. Ah, okay. Okay. Uh uh, for number three, they went with the opening, uh, the This Is The End opening from Apocalypse Now. 
Okay. Uh, number two, and the reason uh, why we're talking about it, is the Dawn of Man cut from 2001. Ah, uh, that single cut. Yep. Well, it's well probably worth it. But, <laughs> Worthy well, of that. And here's the, the number one is also one of those. The um, the no Dryden, it's going to be fun blowing out the match into the desert in Lawrence oh, of Arabia. Oh, in Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. So those, according to Cinefix, are the top 10 pieces of editing. That's what they went with. Those are pretty good, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I guess I'm think with with both the top two there, it's a single cut. Yeah. Um, and that's and boy, those are memorable cuts. Yep, <laughs> it's they, hard to beat either of those. They are. Um, okay, so so that's that's all of the preamble. Um so now we'll talk a little bit about uh the, the plot quickly, kind of maybe, and then our thoughts. So um so here's what I'll say though, is that this movie is you know, maybe conveniently isn't the right word, but this movie is broken down into certain um, chunks. Uh, mm-hmm. We have essentially the Dawn of Man sequence at the beginning where essentially a group of apes um, sort of fight over territory and land and discover how to use uh, bones as tools and what that leads to. And then this the cut that we just talked about, the, uh, the Dawn of Man cut, uh, jumps well, well, well into the future. Um, and then we've got this, this one isn't named, but I just called it the searching for the monolith chunk. Um, sure. Where we have, uh, Dr. Haywood, is it Haywood Floyd? Yeah. Haywood Floyd Floyd. is, uh, essentially on a mission that we don't necessarily know what it is until we get there. And, uh, there's been some anomalies on Clavius and it has to do with this monolith that we got to see in the Dawn of Man sequence. Um, and then we cut to, uh, I believe it is called 18 Months Later, uh, which is the, the Jupiter mission. And this yeah. is the bulk of the This film. is actually 2001 now. So we were in 1999 before that, and then 6 million years, or 4 million years, I think. I thought it was, four, yeah, 4 million, yeah. Yeah, sorry, 4 million. Um, And then, and this is like, this is the big chunk of the movie, uh, which yeah. is with... um. Uh, with Dave and Frank and and Hal Nine Thousand, and they are on the way to Jupiter, um, and uh, and uh, well, we'll talk. I I don't I don't know how much I want to say now, except for they're on a ship, and uh, there's three other crew members who are in this sort of like hibernation state um, until they get there, um, and then there's uh, the Stargate sequence. Well, yeah. Oh, oh, so there's there's intermission, and then there's there's how oh, how right. how showing uh, <laughs> his true colors, and then yes, yeah. the 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 Jupiter and beyond the infinite sequence. Um, so uh, here's here's what I was thinking because there's there's too much to talk about, and and who knows if we'll get to all of it, but I think mm-hmm. maybe what might make the most sense for this movie is to try to take it like uh, chunk by chunk. Yeah, because yeah, they're also different, and there's kind of so much happening different in each of those moments. Very much so. Yeah. So, um, so maybe we should just start off with the fact that the Dawn of Man sequence uh, includes both of our unsung hero. Um, yes. So, um, yeah, this was my. I did. I did one in front of the camera and one behind. Um, yeah. As more or less as well. So yeah, Daniel Richter. Um, so the mime that uh, was hired on the spot by Stanley Kubrick uh, to create these 
ape characters, these ape man characters. Um, what a talent that is. Um, but you know, you you might know more about him than I do. I I tried to reread um, as much as I could of some of the couple of sections of this book that I have on the making of two thousand one. Uh, it's called Space Odyssey, um, and it's by Michael Benson, and it's a great book on the making of this movie. Um, and they go quite a bit into discussing uh, Daniel Richter and his work with uh, Stuart Freeborn, who created the ape suits. Uh, he also would go on, uh, Stuart Freeborn, to create Chewbacca and other creatures in Star Wars. Lovely. Um, I mean, all I, I mean, all, what I know about Richter is that he, um, I think it was something American Mime Troop. Uh, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think his approach to it was great. And I, I really liked hearing him talk about not just wanting to, um, not just wanting to have the troop be able to recreate and act as if they were these these apes at the beginning but that they all had a personality or a characteristic and Mm -hmm. and even if we don't really i mean you know uh moon watcher i think is the most distinct he's the one we follow he discovers the the how to use the bone and stuff but um i think that was a really smart thing to do um because it would be it would be very easy to just go okay let's go to the zoo let's watch the apes let's 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 learn how to look like them and then leave it at that but right. i think by trying to give them character was was a nice touch and he worked with Stuart Freeborn in to be able to uh, control like uh with his tongue and stuff like that how to move the faces um they had like different triggers and bands and stuff inside the masks that would move the brows that would move the uh um, that would move the mouths, especially yeah. in different ways. And so it's, and would like move up, you know, like one side of the snout. Um, I couldn't find all the details, uh, oh. in, of that in the book, but it's really fascinating. And, uh, it's, you sort of read the description and go, it's hard to wrap your head around it all. Just hearing it described. Um, but it's pretty effective. I mean, um, this was the same year as Planet of the Apes. You look at the Planet of the Apes masks, and they're good too. But I don't know. There's something that feels more authentic about these to me. Well, I, I, to, I, well, first of all, I agree. I absolutely agree on that. And and obviously, it's different because you know the the, the apes have got to talk, and I'm sure they've got to look a bit more different. <laughs> um, but but you're right, and I, I, I kept thinking too, like just. Just how much I miss practical effects, practical oh, yeah. mask making and, and practical costumes and, and, and pieces like this. And, you know, do, are they perfect? No. And do they and like, do they really they I mean, in a very real way, it does look they do look like people in suits in the sense that like the the even when they even with the posture sure. adjustment, you, you can tell mm-hmm. there are people in there. But like the quality of, of the. I don't even want to call them costumes. I'm not even sure what the right word is, but the makeup and the mm-hmm. everything about it. And the, and again, I think that's why, it, you know, Richter and his crew are, I think are, are so important. There is the, it's the attitude behind it. It's the, it's what they put into it. And I think the, the you know, makeup and actor combo there really helped me to believe this whole, this whole opening chunk. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I, these, 
and you know, there's, there's, for example, there's this great bit of, I guess, well, it is definitely acting where they have this, just this close up of moon watcher and he just moves his eyes from side, one side to the other and then up. And you can just sense, you know, the fear of the loss of the sun, you know, the fear of going into another night, not knowing if they're going to survive it. Yeah. Um, and it's really effective. It's really powerful. And you know that they really are characters. Each, each one of the actors who played one of the eight people, um, they really sought to bring a character to, to these to these creatures and uh, it's really effective and having, and the fact that Richter said to Stuart Freeborn, I got to be able to do this. I got to be able to do this. I got to be able to do this. And it's like, well, we can't because the technology doesn't exist. Well, figure it out. And they did. Um, and there's that ingenuity of, of this movie that you just see throughout all of this, you know, how um, they came up with these incredible kinds of, things just through that already exists, do something that doesn't already exist. Yeah. Oh, I, yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's pretty astonishing. Well, and I, and I, I just wanted to kind of take that, uh, a bit further. Cause I mean, you talk about just like them having personalities. There's the, the moment where the group of them are in the caves and there's, mm-hmm. there's specifically a group of four of them kind of sitting on the same wall and, yeah, they're making sounds and and like one of it might even be Moonwatcher. I can't remember at the, you know right at this moment, but like one of them gets really defensive and the the other ones kind of complacently start making sounds too. And it's like you totally get the cut. It's like, well, what do we do now? And one's like, I don't know. Let me think. And like, okay, I'm sorry, sorry. And like, yeah. there's such. I mean, I, I love the storytelling that we're getting without actual words. And like, it's yeah. I, I mean, I I don't know that this is my favorite chunk of the movie, but. I think I love what's being done with so little. Um, and I also definitely, and, well, Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say that's kind of the template that is carried throughout the rest of the movie too, where it's just, you don't get a lot of dialogue. You get a lot of just sort of people in a room together, <laughs> you yeah. know, if they're even in a, even in a space together, you know, they there's, they're doing things. They're doing little bits of business sometimes, but so much of this is visual and you don't need to know exactly what the conversation is all the time. Cause sometimes the conversation is just like techno jargon. Yeah. You know, <laughs> totally. <laughs> so it might as well be ape grunts, you know, um, at some of those later points in the film too. And I think that, um, it, it sort of, uh, sets the tone of the whole movie here, you know, in this opening sequence, uh, for that sort of lack of dialogue and for a lot of visual sense is what you're going to be in for with this film. Well, and one thing I noticed, um, you know, and it's, it's so different because I think this is the third time I've seen this movie and, and. You know, and the first time for the purposes of a podcast and really trying to take notes and and understand right. it to the best of my abilities. Um, but there was something I know, and I, I I could be wrong, but I I I think what I one of the things I really like about this opening is that the the camera work is that the the camera either doesn't move 
or it's mm-hmm. very slow, very slow pans, like very yeah. slow. Um, yep. And I, and it was great. Cause it like, I also like, I, I know I'm, I'm not sure how much of this was practical or, or like matte paintings or what, but like, I thought I, 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 <laughs> I, I can fill you in. Oh yeah. Um, go ahead. Um, yeah, the reason the camera is still is because they were using, uh, rather than a rear projection, they were using a front projection technique that required, so there was uh, the 3M company <laughs> made all these screens. So all the backgrounds are screens that are are pro- uh, slides, literally still photos, you know, like slides. Gotcha. Projected um, onto these screens. Okay. And so the, these screens were made of like these little glass beads. Okay. So they had to do this rig where the projector and the camera had to be at certain angles to each other. And there's this huge rig. They essentially, they couldn't move the camera <laughs> if there was, cause they would have to move this whole rig, um, and so when you see a pan across a landscape, you notice there's nothing else in it. Yeah. Usually, right? Yes. Yes. It's just the landscapes. It's because the camera is just moving, you know, across this photo, <laughs> well, and um, it, this projected photo. It's pretty astonishing how authentic it looks though. No, absolutely. And, and, yeah. it, but it was, it was great too. Like just, I, I it just it, from a it, it's really restrained, and especially for where mm-hmm. the movie's gonna go later, um, I, I I thought it was really great to make it to make this even feel a bit different, uh, in terms yes. of how how the camera moved, mm-hmm. um, so, okay, so I think we gotta just come right out and talk about the monolith, yeah, uh, and and that it's just it's just there now and now I I did you know I watched uh, uh, a couple of the special features on on the Blu-ray sure. I have and I know uh, Arthur Clark talked about how you know it was almost like a like a glass screen that had like it, it was actually going to show images and be more more literal about what people were getting from it what people were learning in the book it kind of is that um, I read the book years and years ago so I'm just going by memory but um, the monolith was sort of like a you think of it almost like a glass, um, you know, same shape. Just imagine it made out of plexiglass. Yeah. Okay. And that was originally what they were going to do. Um, but they, it just was completely impractical to make it work. Um, and they're like, um, just colors and stuff that would show up in it. Okay. Um, and that is still in the book though in the sequels, it's not, it's just the black monolith in the sequels, which is interesting that, uh, Clark even changed it to match the movie, um, for, for the sequels. Um, well, I'm glad, I, I think obviously I'm glad they, they didn't do that. I do. I, I think, yeah, I it's think, far more effective yes. and iconic, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, but the, so the, I mean, the monolith shows up and obviously it's this, it's this, uh, this foreign, uh, piece of something that's now there. And, and obviously the, the, the apes don't know what to do with it. And there's this, you know, being afraid to touch it and, and everything. And, and it was just this, it was just this really, it's just, it's such an interesting moment that it comes out of nowhere. And it's like, and I, and in a way, obviously what, what this leads to is it leads to moon watcher grabbing the bone and playing with the bone and smashing things and realizing, ah, oh, I've learned something. I've got this, yeah, this newfound gift to to use this this um this bone as a weapon, and this is also where we get the I think I think this is the first time that we get the no 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 
no, this is I said the opening we get the Zarathustra music, but here yes. it's it's really really prevalent. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, you know it's it's really interesting because I want to I want to say because I think this thing about the movie too is that here the monolith feels like inspiration. The monolith feels like yes. like uh, like you you are going to get something from me. Mm-hmm. But then it's interesting because later. And I, I don't mean to cut ahead too much, but then there's the next segment. There's the stuff with Haywood and and going to Clavius and like talking about it and going to see it. And it's the group of the group of explorers standing in front of it, and they're about to get their picture taken. But then that 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 buzzing starts to happen, yeah. and and it, you know it's deafening. And then obviously we get a hard cut to eighteen months later. So the the ever changing. Your properties of the monolith are are really just really interesting, and I think that's what makes this movie so hard to nail down. Is is the the like honestly like how how the monolith takes not not literal shape, but what how it shapes certain people at different times. Yes, well, uh, the supposedly think of the one on the moon as more like a beacon um, to say, hey, you know. Um, these ape people have left the earth. They finally figured out how to get beyond their, their bonds of, of their planet. So it sends a signal to Jupiter, um, where the next monolith is waiting that will actually give them the ability to move forward truly. So, so, so that that's that, my understanding no, no. of it. Cause that's, that's, and that's kind of drawn from, from Arthur Clark's original, um, story that this came from the Sentinel. The Sentinel. Yeah. Where, yeah. So they, they find this like pyramid on the moon and it essentially was the burglar alarm <laughs> going out to the cosmos saying, uh Oh, the humans are loose. <laughs> you know, watch out. So now um, is it, is it your understanding or, 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 or your opinion that there is more than one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in, in my opinion, the one that, uh, is, uh, with the dawn of man is the, whatever beings are kind of controlling this, um, put it there for the purpose of, of giving humans the next step. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As like teaching the next step. It's like, then we're going to leave you alone for a while. And 4 million years ago, it's cause it says something like that. Um, that, that, uh, the, the monolith on the moon was buried there 4 million years ago Yeah, is what, is what they say. Yes. So they excavate around it. Um, and it's deliberately buried. So I don't, whether that's the same one as the one that was on earth in the beginning, it, that's possible. It could have been just taken off the earth and then they, the, whatever beings are controlling this, put it in the moon. Um, and then they find it, which it sends a signal then to the one that, and the book is a little bit more clear that the one near Jupiter or Saturn in the book, but, um, but near Jupiter is gigantic. It's absolutely massive. Um, so it's, it's like a hundred times bigger than, than the ones we've already seen. Um, so I, it's, that's a little bit more clear there, but, um, well, and that's, and that's, that's, I think that's kind of part and parcel with what Kubrick was going for. Cause I, um, I'm just looking through this here. 
that Kubrick wanted to be more cryptic and that he said that, yeah. you know, bi- that the film is basically a visual nonverbal experience that it's going to hit the viewer at an inner level of consciousness, just as yeah. music does or painting. And I think, I think he definitely wanted to, to, yeah, like I said, to minimize the amount of, of obviousness that you would get from the book and leave it oh, more yeah. open to interpretation. And you know, the book is fairly, uh, is fairly cryptic in itself. It doesn't explain everything. I think it's a little bit more clear about certain things like what's really going on. I'm in the uh, hotel room at the end, for example. Yeah. yeah. But um, it's uh, it's been a while since I've read it. But um, my th- it's it's kind of been I don't know if maybe it's colored by the fact that I've read the book, um, but I've always thought of it as different monoliths um, because of because of that. I I don't know. Yeah. Or no, if it's. I yeah. think that makes sense. I mean, and I mean. I, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm like I said, I'm not certain about this. I just know I know there are parts of it towards the end where the, the monolith is or a the a whatever monolith is is floating through space. And that part of um part of Dave at the end is kind of following it. It seems to it seems to be what prompts him to go through the yeah. the light tunnel there. And so I, that's why I was like, well, is this the same one that's been like kind of leading this one person to this one moment? But. But I obviously I, I don't know that that's true. I just know that we see a monolith flying at the end of it, and it's hard to know yeah. where we are with all of that. Well, I imagine the one that's on the moon is still on the moon, <laughs> you know, even eighteen months later, unless it suddenly just was, you know, transported out of there. Which, hey, who knows? Could be. I mean, the part of it is it doesn't necessarily matter. Either. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, and then you have, of course, you know, the monolith appearing the last time, uh, in, in the hotel room as well. Um, but that we'll get to that. Um, what I find interesting, okay, back in, in the, um, in the dawn of man sequence here. Um, so the first use they, that moon watcher and his tribe find for using the bones is to eat, you know, to survive. Right. Uh That's then like we assume within days it's like, Oh, now we can kill other people too. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's, it's sort of like this immediate human, um, move from my survival to having to destroy the other. Well, and it's funny because at that, I, I wrote down, um, I, I so I, I wrote down before I said carnage and and that things will never be the same and that was in reference to them hunting essentially. Yes. Uh-huh. But then I wrote my next thing was well what do I said what do we all want in life an advantage something that puts us ahead and I go and even though it's as brutal as what they're doing that's what this it, it's an advantage it's the thing that the other people don't have and it's what's going to keep this this tribe this group of apes in control over this, you know, essentially this watering hole, this, this, what seems to be a key, you know, the key part of yeah. the land. Yeah. And that's what they're fighting over is, uh, it, the book, they, they're like really fight it. They make it really clear. They're fighting over the water. <laughs> um, and I think that's fairly clear in the movie, but it's a little bit more open to interpretation. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but that sequence where he's, you know, just sort of hitting the bones, uh, you know, the, the animal bones and yeah. crashing them apart. That is just so stunning and powerful in that music. And for me, this whole movie is a little bit like that piece of music. 
it's a little bit, it's someone, uh, on the special features described the movie as music in the sense, like an opera. Yeah. I disagree. I actually think it's nothing like an opera. I think it's much more like a tone poem, much <laughs> like thus, thus spake Zarathustra, which yeah. is just those few notes. And it, it's open to so many kinds of interpretations. It's an outline of the ideas. It's not an opera that tells you everything and is melodramatic and big. Um, so that's, that's how I feel about the movie as a whole is it really is music. Uh, it has a lot, uh, more akin to music than cinema up to that point. Um, and because of that, you know, it's very much a tone poem kind of experience. Yeah. Um, so then we, I, well, I don't want to, I, I do, I, I, I want to keep us moving along. So let's, so yeah, we'll, yeah, yeah. I, I, that's, I just wanted to bring that up because oh, I, you know, no, part, that's where, great. Yeah. part where he throws the, the, the bone and in, up into the air though. Yeah. And we follow it and then it cuts and it turns into the floating and we, now we have a floating nuclear arsenal yeah. apparently. Yeah. Um, essentially to me, that's saying this cut indicates, um, the only significant idea humans have ever had is to destroy. Yeah, no, it's so because it, I I wrote down too. I go, I said, I go. The insinuation is that we can only keep discovering and building new things and never being happy with what we have. Yeah, and, and this, uh, yeah, this idea that we will, you know, we've, we've, I guess we've explored all of Earth that we can. So let's we're just go out. And, like instead of instead of fixing or working on what's there, let's just keep going. Let's just keep yeah. building. And, yeah, I, I, yeah, I totally totally with you on that one. Yeah. So um, it's, it's, it's quite a, it's, <laughs> it's quite a dark, dim view of the human race. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, I, I totally. Um, yeah. so then, you know, and I think, so we get to the point where we're going to meet Haywood eventually. We're going to see all the fun, the fun ways that they, you know, the floating pen and all the cool stuff that they do within right. the ships. And that's great too. But, uh, the, the, ch I, there, there's a, there's, I I feel like I'm gonna sound like such a like a, like an uber millennial and like you need to keep me entertained and keep me focused. But there's there's so much lingering in this movie, uh -huh. and uh -huh. I I don't know how much like when when we first see the like the big giant circle rotating ship, I was like that looks good by any any date standards. I love mm -hmm. how we're floating through. We're getting a sense of where we are. Oh, but then it just it just keeps going. It just keeps going, and and. I, there was like there was and they didn't they weren't showing me a lot of different things, which is why I was like, oh, man, I. In my opinion, that's the point, though. I I think that it's this is supposed to be, you know, this is a commuter trip, you know. Yeah, this this isn't like space is so amazing. Wow. Look at all this stuff. Wow. Cool. No, it's kind of dull. It's kind of mundane. It's the ordinariness of it all well, that I, I think I think that it was true in 1968 as well. No. And I, and I think that there's, I think all the stuff that happens that we like, I didn't like everything that's on the plane or watching like, and trying to watch them dock. And then even him getting off and like, Oh, this is, he's clearly at like a spaceport, not an airport, but he's at a spaceport. You can, is it like a Howard Johnson logo in the background? <laughs> yeah. And like, I, that's all great. Like, and, and I don't, I, I really liked the matter of factness of all of that. I just, uh -huh. it, in a movie, and it, the movie's not crazy long. It's about two and a half hours. Two and a half hours, yeah. There's, 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 ah, I hate to say this because, like, 
I'm also a big fan of like I, I like his long like I think Barry Lyndon is a great film and that movie lingers mm-hmm. a lot. But yeah. I just and I'm not. Uh, it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm not complaining. I just think they could probably they could have shaved some of that down. Well, they did already. Well, that's <laughs> between true. The pre- that's between true. the preview, between the preview and the and the final release, there was like 19 minutes, I think, cut out yeah. of the movie. Yeah. Um. So personally, for me, okay. Now I I should throw this in a little bit. Um. I've seen this movie probably you know half a dozen times, maybe more than that. But the one time that I really saw it was I saw it uh, when it was for its 50th anniversary. I saw it at the Cinerama in 70 millimeter. Yeah. And that's kind of the only way to see this movie. Yeah. I mean, I it I honestly felt like I had never seen it before I watched it that time. I walked out of the theaters going, I have never I have never seen this movie until now. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I watched it in the, I got that 4k transfer, you know, and that's what I watched on it today. Yeah. And it's, I love it in that it's beautiful. It's pristine, but something about seeing it with an audience on a gigantic screen like that is like, uh, this is the way to see the movie, you know? Well, and, it, um, and that's interesting too, because it's not just, not just because of seeing it on a big screen in 70 millimeter, but mm-hmm. you know, seeing this at the time, I mean, there was all all kinds of accounts of people walking out, going, "What the hell is this?" and and yep. just not. But then you know, and Pauline Kale kind of talks about it in her review. The, I didn't read all of it, but she talks about like how college students from coast to coast kind of knew, oh, this was the movie to trip on, and like this was a movie to, yeah. s- and not not necessarily get high, although I'm sure people <laughs> did, but like that this was a it was a hip movie that like young people yeah. were talking about, and 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 seeing it in the theater so many years later what's great about it is that people who are you know lukewarm about the movie are not going to be there right people right. who want to uh, like become one with the movie are going to be there and so that i mean i i'm envious of seeing it on the big screen but also because you you were seeing it with a group of people who absolutely wanted to be there and it was interesting because they actually had to add uh showings of it i'm not surprised uh, yeah, because so many people were interested because it sold out um, like I think four shows. And, you know, that's part of as part of their 70 millimeter fest that they had at the time. Yeah. Um, so it was sort of like, where do we fit it into the schedule? You know, um, so they added a couple more uh, dates to it. But part of the lingering that you, when you watch it on a really big screen, the lingering of it, you just kind of notice more and more that's going on. Yeah. around you see more and more of the detail um and for me the the more i watch this the less i feel the time of it okay because when i first saw this i was like oh my god this movie goes on forever you know but as i've watched it more i feel that less okay and it's weird i i don't know exactly how to to explain that um other than i it just feels right. It doesn't feel too like too much to me. And even with some of the jokes that are kind of silly, you know, like he's drinking the corn out of the, you know, the high C boxes essentially, you know, is, is, and you know, reading the, the, (laughs) the big list of instructions on the toilet. Yeah. um, Yeah. It's, they're just kind of these weird, (laughs) they, they, they feel like jokes. 
you know. Well, and I, I think one thing I'll, I'll say in, in regards to, to my, you know, you could probably trim it down. And is is funny. I, I think I felt the time probably the most of all for this watch because, yeah. because I am taking notes, you know, and I, sure it's, it's, I, I always have a hard time wanting to watch movies like, and I, I'll, you know, I enjoy this movie and, and I, I, you know, the light, the light tunnel stuff is all, it's all good with me too. But yeah. like having to take notes for a chunk of movie like this, it's all, it's tough because it's like, maybe, maybe part of it is just like, well, I haven't written anything down for a while. So <laughs> do, do yeah, you know what I mean? Enough. Like I, I sure, and, sure. And so, you know, and like I said, that's, that is a, that's a nitpick to, of all nitpicks, but um, yeah. yeah, I just figured I'd throw it out there. Um, Well, one of the things you talked about getting on to the, um, the uh, space station that I thought this was a note that I took is this commoditization of space, you know, oh, um, yeah. Pan Am yep. and the Hilton and the Howard Johnson's and Bell telephone. Everything is for sale up there. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like even all of our, all of our tendencies that we have on earth have just transferred up into space. Um, well, eventually what's so great. What I love about this, this little chunk here before they get to the briefing is we're getting some of that Kubrick from from uh, Strange Love, some of that satirical. You are. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, uh-huh. but I also love like so he comes out. He he has the video call with his daughter, and he comes out and he runs into the lady that he recognizes. And we have like uh, Doctor Smishlov there, <laughs> and he sits down. And I, that my favorite kind of writing is like all this. Like he goes like, well, we were hoping you could clear up the great big mystery of what's going on up there, and and they keep referring to this mysterious thing and how people, you know, you can't get through and it's, you know, it's a, people are talking about a, it could be a, something that could come spread to the moon and how we want to be careful about what it is. And, but I love the, the writing is specific to them, but it's vague to us. And I love that because all that does is bring it. I I lean in more. I'm totally into it. And I I think the overall, the overall direction uh, for the actors to play everything really straight and matter yes. of factly, I mm-hmm. I love and I yeah I was I was gonna be, I was gonna be curious about what you had to say about the performances in this movie. No, I genuinely yeah. really like them, and I know yeah, I too. know that uh, the I mean that's it's really Kier who as as David who's who's like the main person in the movie. Yes, but I I gotta tell you one of my favorite parts of the movie is Haywood's briefing. I, oh yeah, and it's yeah. so and I and I I'm and I I've been thinking about it since I watched it. I'm like, what is it that, what is it that I like so much about this? And I think it again. I think it's just the way he's just simply explaining everything and and, and not giving it away because we still don't know what they're talking about at the end of the briefing. But mm-hmm. his way of like you know we're asking you to do a lot and you know here here's this that and the other. I really, really loved the 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 cover story and the discovery and and just how he's talking. I I got it. I, it's so weird, and I I can't fully put it into words. But I really liked it. it I just it kept me leaning in every second. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Um, it's like there's so little dialogue. When there is, you just kind of pull yourself into it a little bit. Yeah. yeah. By the way, if they if they ever and they shouldn't, but if they ever remake this movie. The guy, oh the guy who, I know, I know, but the guy, <laughs> the guy who played Haywood looked like Clive Owen just back in 1968. I was like, oh, get, okay. Get okay, Clive yeah. Owen in this movie. Mm-hmm. Kier DeLay could probably still play Dave Bowman. Probably. My gosh, that guy does not age, I swear. <laughs> I mean, 
um okay so then so and i'm not trying to skip over all this stuff but so and then yeah. it, what this leads to though is um our crew taking a shuttle out to what 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 will discover is the monolith and this is where we get the line that it seems to have been deliberately buried and that it was buried about four million years ago and so mm-hmm. now we've we've gotten the sense of time and what's happened and then we see the monolith and the reason and so the reason i bring up i brought up the thing earlier about uh slow pans or 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 no moving at all is that there's a moment when the when they're going down the ramp when it switches to handheld oh yeah and yes and i i suddenly was like like what a what a simple filmmaking device to let us know that something is not right something has changed and because everything is so locked off up until then yes or on a dolly or on yeah, just very Kubrickian kinds of movements, you know, of the placements of the camera. Yes. And to suddenly have it go handheld. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. And and so and what's and then what's what's lovely about it is that we get a few minutes of them kind of walking around and going, what is this? But and it's and there's no there's no dialogue. There's barely any mm-hmm. sound. Right. Right. And then that, you know, we get the, the the photographer trying to get the, the scrunch together and he's about to take the picture. And then that that buzzing comes in. And it's <sighs> great because. Because we, whether we know it or not, that switch to handheld was leading to the buzzing. Was le- this this was yep. the thing that was going to go wrong, and um, I also love the repetition. We got it in the Dawn of Man sequence where we first discover it, and we get that that upshot of the. Monolith. I love that shot. Yes. yes, and then we get it I was again. Trying here to decide too. if that was my favorite shot because you've got <laughs> you've got that um, on the Dawn of Man. It's the sunset with the moon. And then here it's the uh, and the sun kind of over it, and then here it's the star field with the earth, right? Yeah. Oh man, it's it's so good. Yeah. Um. So and again, I feel like I just kind of I I kind of blasted through a lot of stuff there. No, that's okay. Um, you know, I got to throw in one thing. Seeing this in the theater when that damn buzz goes off. <laughs> That's one thing when you watch it at home, you can control the volume when you're watching it in the theater, you can't. And it is piercing and it is extraordinarily loud. Oof, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, but the thing is you get the point. Oh yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, that, and I remember, I remember cause I, I mean, sound, I I'm okay. I usually am okay with different volumes of sound, but I actually like covered my ears when, when that went because yeah. it was that loud. So it's something. Um, okay. So then we get to the Jupiter mission. We jump, we jump 18 months there into the future. Um, and now we're with, so, and at this point we're about 55 minutes in, we're not quite halfway through the overall movie, but we're with, we're now at the biggest, like with the people we're going to follow through the most of it. Yes. Um, uh-huh. And, uh, and this is where I think, this is where I think the, the filmmaking, the actual, film direction of Kubrick really gets to shine all, yes. all the cool, like watching um, uh, Frank run around and the different shots we see of how they do it. Um, the, it, it was just all, it was all so great to see. And then we get with this great bit where they're, they're eating dinner and they're watching this, uh, this interview that they did. And we get to learn about them a little bit, but we get to meet, we really get to meet Hal who, yeah. I mean, I, I I don't want to blanket statement this, but is there is there a more pivotal non-human character in a film? Oh, boy, 
It's hard to say. I mean, I, I know, I, and, probably and that's, not. And that's, I know that's tough because I'm sure there are some Star Wars heads who are yelling yeah. at me right now, and that's fine. <laughs> saying, saying, you know, C R two D two, or and, yeah. and honestly, that's who comes to mind is R two D two because you know that's sort of like that's, but R two D two is clearly inspired on some level by Hal. Oh, even if yeah. it's just you know his eye, you know, yes. the one eye <laughs> yeah. that he's got. Um, so yeah, just that analytical sense i love though that they decided just to make it a stationary computer yes and not to have it be a robot because that I, was the original concept yes when i when i heard that i was like oh man that would have awful it, yes it just not it would have it would not have been good and it's funny it's decisions like that like if, if it had been a robot I don't think Kubrick would have made the 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 real good science fiction movie because it it falls no. into it feels like it falls into well maybe maybe they weren't tropes then but it feels like a trope now to just have a droid or a robot or a something. Well, there was a trope then. I mean, you had you know, Robbie the robot in Forbidden Planet, uh, which is a good movie. I mean, I'm sorry, that's a good science fiction movie, Stanley. But um, <laughs> it's uh, but you know Robbie the robot is kind of comic relief in that though. I mean, where Hal has to be believable as an innocent and a villain at the same time. Uh, oh, and I'm oh, so glad you said that. <sighs> well, cause, cause it's so funny. Cause I remember, so we're watching the interview and we're hearing that we're hearing the buzzwords, you know, the 9,000 series is the most powerful computer ever made. It's foolproof and incapable of error. And it's great. And then we see, we see him whip. I think it's Frank's ass at chess or maybe it's Dave. I don't remember. Um, yeah, I think it's Frank. And so we get... supposedly there's a mistake in that in the chess playing though. You know, I've, I've I don't know if that's true or not. I've I've heard that for years that that Hal actually makes a mistake in playing chess. And I hope I hope that for the for the 37 people who noticed that and didn't like the movie for it, good. Yeah. <laughs> um. But uh, well, the thing the thing is, Kubrick would have done that on purpose because he was a master chess player. Too. That's true. That is true. So, yeah. yeah. Um. But I love. I think what I I love so much about this and the one mo like I at before I don't know if I ever really sympathize with Hal. Okay. But then there's the moment where Frank gets the message from his parents, and he's watching it. Oh yeah. But he's lying. He's like, Hal, can you lift up my head? Bring me in more. Okay, take me down, Hal. And it's uh -huh. like. Hal is running the ship. He's the reason why the three other crew members are safely in hibernation. He's the mm -hmm. reason why everything's working very, very smoothly. And yet he's also like, he's a slave on the ship. He is. Yeah. It's very true. It's very true. Uh, I'm also that this is a little bit off what, from what you were saying, but um, that scene is important because that's the second reference to a birthday. Oh yes. Floyd's daughter's yep. birthday. Frank's birthday and then we have one more birthday mentioned later that i will bring up then that's true that is true okay. um so let's see oh yeah but yeah you're absolutely right he is a slave to these guys uh, he's chill about it yeah <laughs> I mean, no he's yeah computer, very much so. he's unemotional but you're right there is very much that um dave seems to have more of a relationship with hal to me Yes. You know, I he's showing him the, his pictures yes. and he's, uh, and different things like that. Whereas Frank is just super kind of distant and is like, uh, it's just microchips. Yeah. But, and, and what the, you said is the feeling. Yeah. And it makes sense because Dave is the one 
that Hal goes, can I, can I talk to you? <laughs> you know, cause you know, I was wondering if you were having second right. thoughts about it's the like, mission. It's like sitting down with his psychiatrist. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of an interesting, uh, um, relationship. Can I ask you a personal question? Yes. Maybe? Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, fascinating. It's yeah. fascinating because, you know, Ah, man. I, I say this because, you know, I think what uh, Elon Musk or, yeah. Bezos. you know, that they, they have that they have that robot that they're that just um, they just the Tesla bot. Unleashing or... to, yeah, the Tesla bot that, yeah. they're talking to, that I just saw the advertisement for today. And I was like, oh, God, it's it's 2001. It's Battlestar Galactica on the way, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry. I'm, maybe I'm a bit of a, a Luddite, you know, that's I've been <laughs> accused of being that in the past or, you know, sort of, I was the last person to get a smartphone in, in, in the world, I swear. But well, <laughs> we could, I God, we could use some more of that right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh man. So then we get, I mean, we really get to the, you know, again, and, and again, no, no diss to the movie, but, we get to like the most plot pivotal part of the movie here, which is that um, how, so Hal says that there's this, there's this thing that's going to fail a hundred percent fail in 72 hours. They go yeah, to replace their communications. Uh, it's, it, it, it runs the communications. I believe is what it is, what that uh, unit does. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and it's funny because how, Hal, kind of being pressed a little bit mm-hmm. and all it's that sort of it's like just a moment just a moment and then he, yeah then he announces it and so they replace it and and you know dave frank is really skeptical dave is too but i think he's trying to be more diplomatic about it they they, they replace it they do the whole thing and it comes back in there and it was fine and yeah. uh you know that that the, the twin computers saying that this one is wrong and Hal saying that it can only be attributable to human error. And it, th- like, like, this is great. Like, yeah. And everybody's every, because, because Hal's voice is so matter of fact, anyway, we're watching these humans tone it down and everybody's being so chill about it. And that's what obviously that, that's what ratchets up the tension. Cause you know, everything is mm-hmm. not fine. Well, speaking of the performances in this, it's almost like, I know Kubrick basically told them just to keep playing it down, play it down, play it down, you know, um, be empty vessels. It's almost, they almost become as robotic as how, yes. You know, um, it's like, they're the automatons aboard this ship as well. And, um, it's just a fascinating way for them. But, but the thing is you see interviews with astronauts and stuff like that. They're kind of like that. You know, well, and I think it's that it's so funny. Uh, and you, you mentioned, um, <laughs> you mentioned unspooled and I, I recently, I think listened to their Apollo 13 episode. And okay. one thing that they, they mentioned, and I think you could hear it in, um, uh, Oh, what was, is it? Uh, level levels voice when they, from real life interviews is he just, yeah, he just sounds really chill. And, and there's a sense of like, you have to keep your cool because if something goes wrong in space, you're talking about minutes and, well, I mean, the famous line, of course, from there, Houston, we've had a problem, you know, is you hear Tom Hanks and he, Tom Hanks delivers it fairly matter of fact, but you hear Lovell actually say, it's like, Houston, uh, we've had a problem here. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's nothing. It's like, <laughs> we're just, you just work the damn problem. Yeah. So I think there's, yeah. I think there's great, I think there's a practical kind of reason for it, but also mm-hmm. exactly like a metaphorical, like they're just as robotic as Hal is. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And then, oh man, I, 
So then they go into the pod, they turn around, they turn off the comms, they make sure that Hal can't hear, they express their their concerns to each other. We get we can see Hal in the distance, and then we get yeah. slightly closer to him, and then we get right on that dot, and we can see that he's reading the lips. Yes. And that reveal is so good. Uh-huh. It's so uh-huh. good. That it leads to, I think, my biggest problem with the movie, and I'm gonna ask you a I'm gonna ask you a question. Okay. Yeah. Does this movie need an intermission? Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's uh, that's well. The thing is, when I first saw this, I saw this on VHS, and there was no intermission. Oh. Yeah. The intermission was removed uh, for the and as and also was the otter act and the uh, and the sort of overture at the beginning. Um, it just wasn't on the tape, so it just kept going. Wow. That's probably the yeah. way cuz I cuz I we get that stuff and I'm like, "Oh, yeah." And like, I don't know, I'm on such a like a a nice tension build there. Uh-huh. And then it like intermission. I was like, "Oh." Well, the thing is it was cool um in the theater to have that intermission sure. weirdly yeah. uh, enough actually. Um, because I mean, cause sort of everyone was just kind of buzzing about the movie, you know, yeah. you went out into yeah. the lobby and everyone's like, Oh, how'd they do that? Oh my gosh. How do they do that? Um, cause there was still that sense, even this 50 year old movie is like, how did I, I, there are a few shots that still kind of baffle me as to how they got them done Yeah, with the limited, with the technology they had available to them at the time, you know? Well, and um, you can see why somebody like Christopher Nolan and appreciates this movie so much i mean i, I think oh, sure the inspiration obviously the inspiration for the rotating hallway and in inception yeah. comes from this movie oh yeah um, oh there's no doubt about it and, and obviously to quote my good friend ian christopher nolan is no stanley kubrick i'm aware of that i still <laughs> i still am aware of that but but i you can totally see the inspiration that this movie had oh yeah this movie i mean even i mean i you you've i know that you've seen nightmare on elm street not that long ago um the whole tina's death where you know she's being dragged up the wall. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've seen um, them, by the and, way, I've seen those... them all now. Ah, welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> I won't ask your opinions on them just now. No. Oh well, yeah. That would take, there's so many of them. I, it would, t- it would take a I while. Know, I know. Well, if, if you do ever do a nightmare on Elm street episode, you know who to call. I so. do. I do. I know you are fond of that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. so then, yeah, then we get to, I mean, and we're pretty much, we're, we just go, we go dialogue list for a long time. and uh, Very long time. And the, the sound during that sequence when they're EVA yeah. is, I love that. Because it's sort of the opposite of what we get in so many science fiction movies now. You know, where there's just layer upon layer upon layer of sound, um, which is great. I mean, I love it. You know, I, I'm a big Star Wars fan. And I think what Ben Burt did, especially in the original trilogy, was really interesting. But what you have here with um, just that, it's it's like you're inside the helmet. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're inside the space suit. You're just hearing that hiss yep. and the breathing. Yes. And that's it. And then when there's silence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the silences in this movie are, you know, excuse the cliche they're deafening no and that yes i it's it's i i I tell my students this all the time in a different way i go we can only understand movement in its relation to stillness we can only understand sound in its relation to silence and you're Mm -hmm. absolutely right and because he's chosen to focus on the breathing we know what that means when the breathing goes we know that that means that frank is done 
Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is the breathing, um, I didn't think about this until this watch is a lot like the heartbeat in the shining. Yeah. Oh yeah. Great point. It's sort of, it's sort of this, um, this organic human function that's always there, uh, that is mechanical. Yeah. It's almost like this blending of, of, of the human and the mechanical. And, uh, that's so much, I think that's one of the themes of this movie in some ways is the dependence upon technology. And, Oh um, yes. Oh yeah. So that's just, it's powerful stuff. And it's, you know, it's, ah, I don't even know what, how to elaborate on that, to be honest right now. Well, it's so, it's so, it's so interesting. I mean, I wrote in all caps around this time right here where actually it was right after I I quoted that, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. He won't let Mm -hmm. him in. And I wrote in all caps, we rely on technology too much. And it's funny because this was made before, I mean, before so many things didn't have personal computers i mean this movie the the fact that this movie the special effects were not generated in any way with computers not even for motion control cameras yeah is pretty astonishing and the amount of you know the 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 tvs and the headrests the video calling i mean all the things that essentially this this you know and i and i saw i saw the clips of the guy from from bell labs talking about like you know yeah, video phones work. You know, we we introduced that at the World's Fair, and it never took off. But that's pretty yeah. much accurate. And and every- now we're talking over. You and I are talking over Skype right now. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of this uh, this funny thing, you know, that hey, we're living in this world in some degree. At oh least. yeah, we're living beyond this world in some degree. And what's funny is, you know, for them to be able to accomplish this for the film. You know, they didn't have, they weren't using video assist. They were using film projectors and they had to hand draw and animate every single one of those screens and project them from behind the fuselage that they built. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. And and then they would spin the room and the first time they tried it, all the projectors fell off. (laughs) It's just, you know, spools of film. I mean. It's it's just mind boggling, yeah. The detail work that went into making this. Well, and it's funny. T- I mean, and another, you know, I I don't want to derail us too much from the 2001 talk, but like, in a completely different way, that Kubrick gets to do that same thing with detail and Barry Lyndon. Just, but so so not with technology, candlelight and being outside and like right. trying to recreate these paintings essentially on film, which he does, and and like the the. You know, I know, I think the, the Shelley Duvall um, uh, Shining stuff gets, comes to the surface a, a lot more because of just how he treated her and how he got the performance and stuff. But I feel like that's, I don't know. I feel like that's one blemish. Or, and maybe, you know what, screw it. I'm sure he has more blemishes. But like what he was able to put on film, I, I, you know, and I, I, like I said, I re-listened to a lot of episodes pertaining to either, I, I listen to our people talking, but I listened to our Kubrick episodes too. And Mm-hmm. Ian, Ian, I'm quoting my friend here and he goes, he goes that Kubrick is the greatest filmmaker of all time. And, right. and obviously I I don't know how to, you know, everybody has their, uh, their opinion of that, but like, that's a hard one to debate. It really is. It really is. Um, it, as far as when you think of the influence, the technical skill, um, that 
clearly went into everything. And, you know, the sheer levels of genius as far as his visual style. I mean, he invented the look. And if anyone else tries it, it's like, oh, you're copying Kubrick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because his style is so distinct mm -hmm. uh, that, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, I it, it's, it is hard to argue. I mean, he's maybe not my personal favorite filmmaker but sure um, sure but gosh <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah I, it's, I, I i can't i can't argue the point uh coherently to be honest so. um so so we've 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 lost frank and dave goes after him and and how won't let him back in and i i just i i went well, first we get Dave and, you know, we because a few times we've seen the um, the caution explosive bolts on the pod, of course. Yes. Letting us know that that's going to be how we can get in. And um, that fisheye lens on those two. Yeah. Is just, whoa. And it's interesting. One thing I did realize while watching it on, you know, obviously a flat panel TV is that some certain elements of a lot of the shots kind of bulge in the middle that's sort of taken away a little bit on a Cinerama screen because there's a curve to it. Yeah. It curves at the edges. Mm -hmm. So, um, so some of that, uh, is, is just different when you see it on a big screen. It doesn't, it doesn't do quite that same effect. Um, so, so it's, it's interesting that, you know, if you have only seen it on a flat panel television, you're getting a little bit, or in my case, my first saw it on a tube television. So it was <laughs> bulging outward, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's just a, it's an interesting, um, it's just an interesting thing that I think, you know, having made this movie for a big screen and for a certain type of screen, he took into account when making the movie too. Uh, just some of those attentions, just to photographic details. Yeah. So, uh, and that's then, a little bit. Oh no, no. The subject. I apologize. No, I no, no, no. That's going, going into some of the technical stuff on this. Um, yeah. Cause I find it fascinating. Uh, a lot of it. And I find the technical elements of this movie, um, draw me in more than, uh, for a lot of movies, to be honest. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and yeah. I think that's, it's that Kubrick detail. Um, yeah, and just also just the kind of technical technological movie that it is too. I think um, plays into that. You know, even from a story and aesthetic standpoint. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Anyway. And then how you know we get you know <laughs> Dave comes in and Dave's on a mission and I love you know how wants to know what he's doing. He goes, I really think I'm entitled an answer to that question. I can see you're really upset about this and. Uh, and then, and then Dave starts pulling out all the memory cards and stuff and, um, how starts to degrade and I, he kind of reintroduces himself and I love the callback to bell labs and how they were able to make a yes. robot sing Daisy. And so it starts uh -huh. to sing Daisy and, um, and then the message plays and then they talk about, you know, intelligent life discovered off earth and how yeah. its origin and purpose remain a total mystery, which is great. I think that's actually that. I think the key to the movie is right there. It is. It is. And, you know, I, I have, and that was the third mention of the birthday was Hal's birthday. He mentions when he went online. Uh, yes. Um, and so at the moment of his death, he's recalling his birth. And I think that the birthday element is sort of a thematic importance, <laughs> you know, uh, for where we're going with this too. Well, and it's funny cause there's also, there's kind of a seven stages of man, um, 
Shakespeare, Shakespeare's uh, Jay Crease monologue there is. here. I mean, not just at this moment, but also yeah. throughout the movie, you know, where mm-hmm. we start and where we end up and where we end up isn't too far from where we were when we started. Yeah, it's a circular movie in, a, in some ways. Um, and you know, one of the things I think it, I think it was Elvis Mitchell brings up that, you know, back in the 60s, you could walk into this movie at any point and it would just keep playing, yes. you know, and yep. you could just stay. And, and, and I could see that being uh, this being a movie that you could watch from any point and then come back around to where you started. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that would be an interesting exercise to try <laughs> at some point, you know, just to just to watch it from. Oh, I'm going to start from the Stargate scene and yeah. then watch it around to then again or or something like that. Speaking of that, man, let's where I think we're here. And uh, yeah, well, I actually have a quick question for you. You said you felt uh, sympathy for Hal during the scene with Frank and the birthday, um, the message from his parents. Did you feel any sympathy for Hal during his death scene? You know, it's so funny. I, 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 I do. And I, I mean, it's so, it's weird. Cause like, how how's asking all these questions and he he clearly wants to know what dave is thinking but he's just essentially killed frank i yeah. don't it's tough i i go it's so funny i go through a lot of different emotions about it because obviously it's like well look how you just you murdered you you would you planned the death of somebody i mean that's you you killed him but like when 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 he starts to degrade and like all that stuff it's like you do you do feel bad, but it's it's tough because we're talking about something that was programmed by humans to essentially to to serve the 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 crew to serve the men. I it's tough. I, yeah. At the end of it, I don't know. Which I also think is, yeah. it's 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 it, you know it's purpose will remain a total mystery. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm I'm kind of with you on that. But I think that's also a great that's a great sign that you know I get to the end and I'm not I'm not totally convinced one way or the other. Hmm. Oh man. So then, okay. So we get to, we get to the, the light show. We get to Stargate, we get to Jupiter and beyond the infinite. Um, I don't even, okay. I don't even know how to logically talk about about, not about when, when the pod stops and we're in the room, but about, okay. About the light chunk of this. I mean, he's, he's going through time and space. It's, it's a trip. Sort of, I mean, is it like a wormhole? Is it a black hole? Is it, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, sort of described not in the movie, but just sort of outside of the movie as the Stargate. Um, you know, is he being flung to some area, other part of the galaxy? Uh, I, I don't know what's going on entirely. And even, and all, you know, um, the color spectrum, like the colors are coming uh, on left and right for a while. Then it switches to top and bottom. And then, yeah. and then it kind of morphs into this kind of lava lamp looking material. And then, and then it's, it's, it's like land, it's like familiar looking landscapes. Just obviously yeah. the, the color's been totally tweaked on it. One of the things that's interesting about, and this was mentioned, that book I mentioned earlier, they talked about how they did that because, um, the, uh, Technicolor was done in three strips at the time, right? Um, so you had different layers. You had a blue layer, a magenta layer, and a yellow layer, I believe. But if you put them in the wrong order, it changes the color scheme. So that's why you get all the weird um, 
looks like his eye, the close-ups of his eye. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so when those when those uh, strips of color are put in different orders, or say only two of them are used, or maybe um, they're just put in whatever variation of order you can put them in, you get all these uh, unique uh, color schemes that happen. Um, and they did the same thing with the landscapes, because obviously some of, one of them looks like it's Monument Valley or something. Yeah, it totally. Yeah, and then there's another one that looks like. Um, uh, just like over the ocean or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And except I, it's, except it's green. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oddly yeah. colored. Yeah. So I, I know I'm, some of it was ink dropped into, um, like paint thinner and industrial solvents and stuff and just the shapes that they would make as it spread out. Yeah. And like just a ton of light coming through the bottom of it and stuff. Um, so it's kind of interesting, just technique, um, that, and this is where, you know, he says, where you have Pauline Kale saying, you know, they stole some of these ideas. Uh, one of them was uh, John Whitney who did this uh, streak photography where you keep the, uh, the, the shutter open, you know, and, and the light streaks. And, and so what they, and that's essentially one of the things that is done for this as well. There's animation, there's all sorts of interesting things, interesting problems that were solved in unique ways um, by my behind the scenes um, unsung hero. And that is uh, Douglas Trumbull, who um, really fascinating guy. Uh, he's in some of those documentaries, uh, yeah. those special features yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wish he would actually, um, do a demonstration of how we did it. Cause I can, I read this description. It's like, I do not understand how you did this. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just so bizarre. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's striking. Oh yeah. Oh, very much. So. It's an incredible effect. Still an incredible effect. Yeah. And, and the fact that it was done practically. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and. You know, you know, if, and if nothing else, you just know that this is, this is the journey. I mean, you're going through something and, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I know I, I hadn't really felt that way in a movie and I have, I've only seen this movie once, but uh tree of life has moments like this where it does. Yeah. It feels very uh, ethereal and, and open and vague, but also like it's, it's your own, it's your own experience and whatever you, you feel going through it. Yes, I, I know exactly the sequence you're talking about where, you know, she quotes from the book of Job, I believe. And it's like, you know, and it kind of goes through time and space yeah. <laughs> for for that whole, for a large section. It's very much like this in a lot of ways. So so then we we, we land in the room and I know, um, oh, see, I, I, I got to make sure I find my note. But you might know this too. I know they like they based the room essentially off of... Um, a hotel, and I, I thought I had it, but I th think maybe it's at like the Dorchester, but I might have that wrong. But yeah, it's like a Paris hotel or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. But what's great about it, and what I what I love though, is it's got this really old, elegant feel to it, and yet the bottom are these like lit tiles. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. it's it's great because, and like I think I think it was Clark who was talking about how like like what if like. It, and again, I don't know if this is from the book and if this is official or if it's just like, you know, opinion, but like that, like aliens, like could we could like sort of simulate a, like a memory and like have it be familiar to him, but not totally. And that's where like the, like yeah. the floors can't match what what he remembered. Like it's an incomplete memory put out to like make to make Dave feel more comfortable. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a pretty good summation because this is supposed to be in the book. They, they essentially literally say, uh, 
Dave is in an alien zoo. <laughs> oh, there you go. Uh, he's like in a, in a cage in a zoo, but they've done it up to make him feel comfortable. Yeah. But things aren't quite right. Yeah. They can't because they're not human. They don't get it quite right. And one of the things that's, uh, you know, another technical thing, those tiles on the floor where I think were like thick plexiglass and they had these lights going up and the lights were so hot they would actually melt it. <laughs> so they had to replace these tiles all the time. Um, oh, man. And just crazy um, just to get that look, that totally austere um completely sort of sanitized look that that room has. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then obviously, and, and then we get this really interesting I, storytelling device where, you know, Dave is looking out of the pod at essentially himself in his suit, but uh -huh. it's, it's an older version of Dave. Yes. And then it, that Dave is walking through the room. He sees a, a slightly older version of Dave eating at a table. Yeah. That Dave it's turned, Oh yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, then he turns and then he sort of becomes who he sees. Yes. Yeah. And I love, that's one of my favorite things in this whole movie. Um, oh my gosh. It's, it's kind of, this is the part though, that a lot of people are like, I have no idea what's going on. And for me, it was always kind of like, he's just, he's just getting old and dying. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of all that's. I think, you know, um, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, I mean, it's, I, I, I think, I think what is, it's that it's the interesting approach to the filmmaking there. I think yes. that can, that makes it more like, and it's so tough because it could be as something as, as, as simple as, well, we didn't want to spend another hour showing him age. So we just did it in these really interesting cuts. I or, think it's also a sense that time doesn't really matter. Sure. In yeah. Whatever this space is. And well, so. and I think it plays into, I think, I mean, if, if in the world that we are in, that it's like this zoo for humans, um, that watching this time, uh, go, go so quickly in this way would play into that. Like if I, if I can't do anything other than be in this room, then I think seeing these cuts like that it really, it really speeds it along, but it does it in a really nice way. Yeah, I it's one of my favorite storytelling techniques used in the movie. I and it's I've I don't think I've ever seen anything quite that comes close to trying to I mean, why would you even try <laughs> to to do that yeah. in anything else? I mean, now, it's so unique. Now, I will I will say that like, you know, other than the going through the Stargate sequence I pretty much, and, and that's the thing, like, like the Dawn of Man sequence makes sense. The, the, mm -hmm. the, uh, Haywood talking about Clavius and, and finding this thing that's been buried makes sense. Hal and, and the doctors on the ship makes sense, right? Yeah. But then yeah. we get this thing, but then, so Dave lands and, and you can, you can make a story out of this. Even if you don't get yeah. the whole human zoo thing, there's something's going on. I, yeah. I will be the first to admit though that, Dave's body going away and then having the little, like the little baby in the bubble or I, it's commonly referred to as the star child. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the star child, like being out in space and, and, and Zarathustra is playing again. I, I'll be honest. I don't totally know <laughs> what is happening in the last few minutes of the movie. Yeah. Well, for me, this is my interpretation and uh, whether I'm correct or not. I mean, 
I, I don't know. Right. It's, Who it's, knows? It, I, I don't. I don't know if there. I don't know if there is a is a correct to this. What I do believe is happening is that okay. So when he's old and dying, and this is where the birthday comes in again. He reaches out for the monolith. Yes, right? very true. It moves his hand in the same way towards the monolith as Star. As I'm sorry, Moon Watcher did in the in the opening sequence. Yeah. Yep. And as and as Floyd does as well, though Floyd uh, is not touching an, a, a monolith that will um, do it is, is not a teaching one. It's a beacon. Yes. Whereas this is a, another one that's the teaching mechanism type, and he lifts his hand towards it, and he just like Moon Watcher was taken to this next moment of the evolutionary cycle. Yeah by encountering this uh, monolith, that is what happens to Dave here. And he's, forgive the religious terminology, but I think it is actually appropriate, uh, especially in this closing sequence. Uh, he's born again. Yeah. Essentially. He is, um, he is now something, he's the next step of human. And this next step of human, time is doesn't matter. Yes, he's just an infant as this next step of human. But um it's this this whatever this this human has moved beyond the physical, you know, the the war bound um damaging your neighbor, damaging the other type of human that we are apparently now to being something that is um, beyond the bonds of that. And so, um, in the book, they use the same line that stargazer thinks or stargazer. I think they call him stargazer in the book, but moon watcher, he says, um, he, he says star, uh, moon watcher didn't know what he was going to do next, but he would think of something. And that's what, uh, Clark has Bowman think at the end. It's like, he didn't know what he was going to do next, but he would think of something. I really like that. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, rebirth, I think, I mean, that's there. And, and I, I think that part of me knew that, but I really like you pointing out the way that moon watcher approaches the, the monolith in a, in an awe inspiring, what can you teach me way versus the way that Haywood does, which seems like I'm going to figure you out. I'm going yes. to like, there's, there's sort of an exploitiveness, exploitativeness uh, to Haywood. Yeah, whereas Bowman, I think, is much more like Moon Watcher once again. Yeah. You know, teach me. Yeah. You know, what, because, I mean, he's dying. I mean, what, yeah. what, what else is going to happen? And he's a sent. And so, I mean, the fact that he can apparently move, that, that space apparently has no meaning to him any longer. Yeah. That he can now be back near the earth. And he's looking down at the earth. It's almost, it's all, there's, there's something even sort of weirdly messianic about it. Like he would, as this new human, be able to teach the other humans. No, I think that's there. I think that's there yeah. in some way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why I find the movie, I mean, supposedly, you know, and I don't know if this is exactly true, but uh, people would ask Kubrick, what is this movie about? And he would say, it's about God. Um, I thought I, I, uh, 
There's something else, though. He's, uh, in a 1968 interview with Playboy, he said, You're free to speculate as you wish about the philosophical and allegorical meaning of the film, and such speculation is one indication that it has succeeded in gripping the audience at a deep level. But I don't want to spell out a verbal roadmap for 2001 that every viewer will feel obligated to pursue or else fear they've missed the point. Right. I like that. Right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I think there is an element of this movie that, you know, because this is, I mean, from from like a purely scientific theoretical standpoint, it's Clark and um, there and Kubrick are tapping into the whole idea of, you know, um, of life on Earth coming from outer space, you know. Yeah. Um, And so that's that's sort of one of the scientific underpinning theories that that is in here. But, um, but it's an, it's an encounter with, you know, I don't know if it's the creator. I don't know if it's, um, you know, the guides of some sort, whatever these beings are that we thankfully do not see. Uh, that's another great choice that they made Yeah, because <laughs> originally they were going to show aliens in this. Yep. Um, uh, <laughs> that I know again, a... great choice to not do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, and you know, because I mean, the aliens is, is the world of Star Trek and Star Wars, which are great. I love those things, but it just doesn't feel right here to, yeah. to know what the force is in this, you know, whatever these beings are. Yeah. Um, it's better. Or if there even are beings or if it's something else, I, it, it's better not to know. It's more interesting not to know. So any, I mean, I, I, we, I mean, we've gone through the movie, and I think because I, yeah. I still want to do our our top Kubrick films. So I guess my the last question I have is 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 there anything egregious that you haven't like like if 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 you didn't say it now you'd be like God damn you for not letting me say that. <laughs> no, I think I covered everything that I had written down. I mean, one of the things about this movie, like I said, it's that tone poem. It leaves you. It leaves so much space for you to interpret and think and ponder and um but you know the story is like nothing i mean there we've there's there's not much story there's not much dialogue and that space um (laughs) you know literal and (laughs) and you know metaphorical is um there for you to fill with thought you know yeah and to fill with your interpretation you know and i think that's a beautiful thing and i wish more movies did that and you know um some do. I think, um, you know, A24 has <laughs> sort of this reputation for doing things nice and slow, yeah. uh, giving you lots of space to think about those things. And I think that is a direct result in some ways of this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know. But um, so you can see this influence of this film in surprising ways in surprising places too. I mean, it's, it obviously the science fiction film was never the same after this, a movie like, like, uh, Danny Boyle's sunrise, I think oh, yeah. is, is something that owes a lot to this, uh, in, in, in a positive way, you know, and then you have, um, um, you know, I think that there was a movie a couple of years ago, passengers 
not a great movie, but it had some interesting ideas. But like the spinning, uh, there's a there's a spinning centrifuge on it too. Yeah, um, <laughs> different different things that you see uh, today still. Um, so obviously the science fiction, but also just pacing and circular storytelling, and um, giving the uh, openness for interpretation. Um, any movie post-1968 that does any of those things, I'm convinced, owes something to 2001. Yeah. I I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with, with those sentiments big time. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's... Uh... Well, I well we'll do we'll do stupid question first, and then we'll 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 head to this. Okay. So, um, Brian, do you think that two thousand and one, a space odyssey, should be in the book? Uh, let me think. Of course, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And and we're, we'll do our top fives here. And uh, yeah, I mean, we talked a lot about it. I, I will say, like, this is definitely more of a movie that I think I appreciate that I than I enjoy watching, but I still enjoy watching it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. I I know a lot of people who I, I was talking with an, another podcaster friend and he was like, because I, I told him I'd love to talk about this movie with him sometime. And he was like, I just don't like that movie. I've tried. <laughs> it's like, I know I appreciate it. I appreciate it. It's important, but I just don't enjoy it. It's like, I, I get that. I get that. I didn't enjoy it. The probably first two t- or maybe even three times I watched it. I don't know why I persisted to watch it again, but, um, uh, eventually it just kind of clicked with me and I j- just, I, I got it. I, I realized what was really going on, what I was getting out of it too. So, so, uh, just for our listeners, uh, if you don't want to go back and re-listen to our Lolita episode, I'm going to uh, just quickly run through what Ian's top five, uh, Kubrick films were, uh, from that episode, uh, f- going from five to one, they were a clockwork orange 2001, the shining, although he was very clear that it was the UK cut of the shining and not the, uh, the American cut, uh, number two was Barry Lyndon, which used to be his number one until after we did our episode on his new number one, which was Dr. Strangelove. So at the time of recording, those were his top five uh, Kubrick films. Uh, Brian, I'm going to open up to you. Five through one. What do you got there? You want me to just do them all right in a row? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my number five is, um, oh, I, I should, I should caveat that I have a feeling that if I had had a chance to watch a movie that is not on my list, it might be well beyond here. Okay. I've only seen I've only seen Barry Lyndon once, mm-hmm. and I just don't remember it. I didn't have a chance to rewatch it before this episode, but I have a feeling it probably would be on this list uh, if if uh, if I had had a chance to rewatch it. Okay, so my number five is uh, maybe a controversial pick: is Eyes Wide Shut. Not I, that was my five on our first list. It it doesn't make my five this time, but I, yeah. I I like that movie. I think it's a fascinating movie, and um, few movies uh, sort of mine the complexities of uh, marriage quite like Eyes Wide Shut. Yep. Uh, so I I find the movie uh, very fascinating, very moving. Um, weirdly moving. Yes, <laughs> I no. should say. Oh, I, should I say. agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, now number four and number three, were jogging back and forth. Um, number four, I put Dr. Strangelove. Okay. 
um, which would would be higher were it not for maybe just a couple of weirdnesses as far as order of scenes toward the end. Sure. Um, you, you know, I don't know if you know what I mean by that. Cause I mean, you have, you have slim Pickens flying out, you know, riding the bomb. It feels like that should be the end of the movie. Yeah. And then we have this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, I agree. So, we still have some yeah. war room stuff there. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that war room scene is great. Yeah. Is the no, problem. Is. You yeah. know, it's like, it's, it's a wonderful scene. It's like, is it in quite the right place? Is hard. Is, is I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, so number three, I, uh, I'm a horror guy. So, uh, of course I had to put the shining, um, which I think is a great film and it's such a, it, it's, it's hard because I'm a big Stephen King fan too. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the book and the movie are so different. What I think, um, ultimately I, I love is, uh, the savior of it all is Mike Flanagan with Dr. Sleep. Oh Yeah. Uh, sort of, sort of making it all work. Uh, his, I'm a big, his director's go, cut of Dr. Sleep is great. Oh, it's fantastic. It's, it's honestly one of my favorite movies of the past, you know, maybe 10 years. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just really excellent. Number two is going to be a surprise to people. I think, um, my number two is paths of glory. I just watched that for the first time the other night. Yeah. And here's the reason why, um, for me, this is the perfect a convergence um, where Kubrick had um, sort of the technical prowess, right? But also was still, it still connects emotionally. Uh, whereas so many of his later films, uh, 2001 is a great example, are, are so distant. They're yes. very cold films, including The Shining, yeah. I think. The Shining is a distant and cold film. Um, and and there's nothing wrong with that, but I, I think that there's, I love in paths of glory there's, and it's a quick, short movie, I tell you. Yeah. Um, and it it, it packs a lot into that, into that 90 minutes, um, less than, but it is just, uh, to me, it's that perfect convergence of sort of the technical perfection and the emotional resonance. Uh, and that's why it's my number two. And then you can probably guess my number one is uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Well, there you go. Um, so uh, 2001 uh, it was my number four. It is now my number five on my list. Okay. Oh, I, I, but, well, and I agree. I, Barry Lyndon would be like my six. I, 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 I so enjoyed it the first time I saw it. I've only seen it once. So I, I do owe it a rewatch. Um, I saw it so long ago and I've, I've only ever seen it on, you know, DVD on a, a, again, a a tube TV, I'm sure. Uh, So I, but I got, I bought the criterion edition in the last sale. So I'm, so I'm looking forward to, uh, to getting that one. Uh, my number four, uh, is the earliest of his, or, uh, the earliest of the films on my list. And that's the killing, which I, man, that movie is such a ride. Sterling Hayden is great. I, uh-huh. It's a great heist movie. I, oh, there's just so much going for it. I really dig it. I really dig that movie. My uh, podcast co-host and I uh, talked about that movie on the Cult Movies podcast uh, with Anthony King uh, a couple weeks ago, and it was just a blast to revisit that movie. Such a great movie. Yeah. One of the best. One of the best heist movies ever, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. 
Uh, so, okay, my number, okay, where are we at here? Oh, my number three. My number three is the same as yours. It's The Shining for, I mean, okay. the reasons you said. I mean, it's 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 such a tense, awkwardly awkwardly intense movie to watch. I, I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> you know what's kind of interesting about it? The more I watch it, I realize how funny it is, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of oddly, bizarrely funny, and I never got that humor when I was younger, so. Uh, my number two is Dr. Strangelove. Um, and my number one isn't on your list. My number one is a clockwork orange. Um, yeah. and I know it's, it's tough and it's hard, but that, and I know I, I mentioned this when we did it on Lolita, but, uh, it, it was the movie that got me into Kubrick. And I, I so, I so appreciate the filmmaking and, and what it's trying to say. And I, and I, and I think Malcolm McDowell's great in it too. Oh yeah. And the, here's the thing about a clockwork orange. <laughs> I've, um, that used to be my favorite. Okay. There, there was, a, there was a time where Clockwork Orange was my favorite, uh, Kubrick film. I still greatly appreciate it. I understand. I realize it's a great movie on another day. Maybe it would be on my list. Um, over the past few years, I, I guess I, it just sort of got edged out by some of the others. Yeah. Um, I mean, the subject matter is obviously difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, to have, to have such a, he's such a despicable person, but so incredibly entertaining <laughs> and yes. likable that, that, that cognitive dissonance, I don't know, uh, sort of shoved it down the list a bit for me over the years. And, you know, and I would probably watch it again tomorrow and go, Oh God, this movie's incredible, you know? And I know it's an incredible movie, <laughs> you know, and I love Malcolm McDowell in it, but, um, for some reason it sort of has just kind of edged down the list over the years. And, and that's, and that's totally fair. And and actually it has been a while since I've seen it. I just kind of, it, I know where it kind of stands in my memory of all things. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, the thing is I, I've, I've sort I've been doing a Kubrick rewatch and I actually started this a, a while back. So I decided to watch everything. And the only ones I hadn't seen were uh, fear and desire and some of the short films. Um, but, uh, so I, I wanted to be up through the killing by the time we um, did our episode on, on cult movies. And, um, and so when you said, Oh, you're watching a lot of Kubrick's like, yeah, well it, it's sort of been going on for a while, uh, but I'm probably going to skip over a clockwork orange for now because that 4k is coming out. Yes. That's, and true. I want to, that is true. and I, and that's the way I want to see it next. I, I, I really, I mean, cause I, I have it on DVD. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still, um, but it's funny cause I've owned that movie on VHS. I've owned the first DVD release and the second DVD release. And so now I'm just going to jump up to 4k on it. Yeah. Makes sense. So, Makes sense. Yeah. Um, well, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I truly appreciate you taking the time to talk about this dense, big, deep movie. Um, yeah, truly, truly appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really am glad I was here. Um, wish could have had this conversation, of course, with Ian. Um, but uh, I think, like you said in an earlier episode, with us in spirit, um, you know, having that uh, camaraderie here among us uh, as we talk about this one of his favorite movies. So that's that's um, it's. I'm, I feel honored that you asked me on to to do this. Oh, well, the, the pleasure is all mine. Um, and, and please check out 
check out Brian's writing at Manor Vellum and, at, at, and uh, Bloody Disgusting. Check out his pod, Movies for Life. I'm assuming that's where all the places where you can get podcasts. It, it is all the places you can get podcasts. And you can find it on Twitter if that's your thing. Um, it's at Movie Life Pod. Um, and, and all my writing is also on Twitter at Brian D. Kuyper if you uh, want to check any of that out. Perfect. And yes, and you can find us uh, on Twitter and on Facebook um, and we're on Spotify and all the great places too. Um, And uh, thank you for listening. Stay tuned next week as we jump uh, a few years into the future. We're now into the 70s and um, we're going to be talking about a a film that I get. I mean, all these are Ian's favorites, but one that he was so surprised I hadn't seen and I will remedy that soon. And we're going to be talking about American Graffiti. That will be the next film. Uh, But until then, uh, my name is Adam, and we will see you next week.